Maybe the dollar should collapse, but it's not going to. The current system does need to be replaced. There's just nothing available to replace it. And we wouldn't be ditching the dollar so much as swapping from the euro dollar. And the difference between dollar and euro dollar is everything. But therein lies the challenge. Among the few contenders that have been put forward over the last 15 or so years, China's yuan, whatever small, tiny chance it may have had to dethrone the euro dollar, well, after today, that's just dead and buried. It's gone. Going back to around 2011, there isn't a year that doesn't go by that we don't hear about China replacing the dollar, gunning for the king dollar. In 2011, they did their first bilateral exchange with another counterparty country. And that was when everyone said, okay, here it comes. The dollar's days are numbered. Yet year after year after year, Yuan has failed to mount any serious threat to the euro dollar system. Six years ago, remember the Petro one in 2018? Much was made about that, how it was going to, now that the world could price oil in terms of renminbi, would no longer need the dollar. And the dollar was going to be toast in 2018, if not 2019 at the latest. And it never happened. In fact, the Petrowan, hardly anyone even talks about that anymore. Because the issue here isn't dollar. It isn't the currency denomination. It is the structure of the euro dollar. And after what happened with Evergrande and its bankruptcy, any chance that China had to dethrone the euro dollar is gone now. But what could dethrone the euro? Is there a chance? What is it that really happened with China? Why does the Evergrande bankruptcy make so much of a difference? Those are the questions we aim to answer today. And it starts with asking the first question. The first question everyone should be asking. What is a reserve currency? It's not some major economy that just says, I'm going to start using my currency as a reserve. It has to... It has to perform several crucial, critical functions, and it has to do it well enough that other people voluntarily join into it. A reserve currency is a vehicle currency, as it was once called, or a middle currency, an intermediary between various different systems all over the world. We have to be able to have very different currencies and economies and countries and cultures be able to talk in the same language as those on the other side of the planet, maybe with opposite cultures and everything else. There needs to be a currency, an intermediary in between that allows these very different places to talk to each other in a common language. But it isn't just a common language, it's also a common medium. Because it's a common medium, that means it needs to be widely available as well as widely accepted. I'll give you the example that I always use. The Japanese importer who wants to buy goods from Sweden. Without a vehicle currency or an intermediary currency, a reserve currency, it would be incredibly difficult for this exchange to happen. It wouldn't be impossible, but it would be very difficult and very costly. The Japanese firm would have to come up with Swedish kroner in order to pay for the goods that it's about to import. Where would Japan get a whole lot of kroner that could be used by this one company to purchase goods from Sweden? Or the Japanese importer could send yen to Sweden, but what good would yen be in Sweden? Unless there was a use for yen in that far off place, that makes it incredibly difficult to get paid in that currency. However, if you have a currency that is both common 
as well as available in both of those places. It's useful in Sweden. It's available in Japan. Then this reserve currency arrangement works really, really well. So if dollars are available, widely available in Japan and Sweden and everywhere in between, then we can intermediate through this dollar system and therefore we, we, we can connect all these places around the world in a highly flexible, efficient fashion. This was the secret which unlocked globalization in the latter half of the 20th century. But it wasn't the US dollar that did it. It was the Euro dollar system. Because of several key features of it, it became widely accepted. It wasn't forced on anyone. People voluntarily signed up for the system because it benefited everyone who was involved with it. Before we get into what the Eurodollar actually was, I want to remind you that Eurodollar University, we're having a webinar next Monday, February 19th, President's Day in the U.S., 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll be talking about, by popular demand, the commercial real estate problem. What is the problem? How big is it? Maybe some good news along those lines. And what are the key risks moving forward? There's a link in the description of this video if you want to sign up. That's next Monday, February 19th, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I hope to see you there. So let me say this again, because this is, it bears repeating over and over again. The current global reserve currency system is not the U.S. dollar. It is, in fact, the euro dollar. And it has been this way for a very, very long time. And what is the difference between dollar and euro dollar? Well, let's go back to November 1960. We're going way, way back toward the very beginning of this Eurodollar system. To be clear, nobody really knows where it came from. There are several origin stories, including one that was published in the work that I'm about to cite here, which said basically Eastern Bloc countries, including the Soviet Union, they didn't want to hold their U.S. dollar balances in U.S. banks for threat of confiscation. Sound familiar? So they started to hold these U.S. dollar balances in banks throughout Europe, especially London and Paris. But there are other there are other ways in which the Eurodollar system arose. But regardless, by 1960, it was already a full-fledged, substantial marketplace for dollars outside the United States. And so what we're going to cite here from November 1960 comes from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's monthly review. And the article is called The Market for Dollar Deposits in Europe. And it said this, the emergence at that time of a fully integrated and active foreign exchange market enabled banks to take in deposits denominated in foreign currencies, swap them into dollars, and use the dollars for investment in the continental dollar market. That's what they called it before the euro dollar, uh, the term euro dollar was coined. In such a swap transaction, the foreign currency deposit is used to purchase dollars in the spot market for, for, for immediate delivery. And simultaneously, so as to hedge against adverse exchange fluctuations, dollars are sold forward for delivery and payment at about the time the foreign currency deposit must be repaid. And what they're really saying here is that it was fully convertible as a medium. You could come into the system with Swiss francs or British pounds or Canadian dollars and swap them into U.S. dollar denominations and then go about your, the rest of the world. What the reserve currency did, what the Eurodollar system did very well for the first time in human history, human economic history that we know of, 
is that it allowed us to bridge massive divides between not just different systems, but also geographies. Think about it. A bank or a wealthy individual who had spare currency in, say, Switzerland could invest that spare currency someplace on the other side of the world where spare currency could be needed. And maybe it was needed to a high degree. So now we could mobilize the entire world's currency system to move from where it was or where it existed to where it was best put to use. Intermediating through the euro dollar system meant being able to do so in reliable, predictable, and efficient fashion, a true reserve currency. And the way in which it was done was the banks that were operating in that system. Back to FRBNY in 1960. In many European banks, the manager of the bank's money position is also the chief foreign exchange trader, a practice which is virtually unheard of in the United States, the close link in Europe between money and foreign exchange markets. Indeed, that was a huge step forward because it meant that the banking system wasn't just a national intermediary among currencies in that local region. It meant that banks had become international intermediaries. And they learned to work together through what Robert Russo called in 1984, these new networks of interbank relations so that money from one part of the world could be swapped into US dollar terms, moved all over the rest of the world and come out where it was needed the most. Money became mobile, highly mobile, highly useful. That's what made the euro dollar system dominate was the fact that it was so darn usable in so many places that people signed up for it, even though they didn't know how it worked or what it really was, or that it wasn't actually the US dollar. Fast forward about a half a century to June of 2012, in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis, which was really a global dollar shortage in the euro dollar system, people started to take a second look at this euro dollar. It wasn't just the Chinese saying, hey, we're not happy with the way this reserve currency system is working or not working. We'd like to do something about it. They never really tried to replace it, but at least dissatisfaction with the euro dollar system started to show up right away in 2009. So this was the BIS quarterly review from June of 2012. And what they said was, we can think of the euro dollar system as four different typologies. The first is purely offshore. And purely offshore is where you have a depositor or a source of money that's outside the United States transacting with someone else also outside the United States. So we're lending money from one place to another without touching the United States whatsoever. That's the real secret of the euro dollar system. It doesn't need the US. They came up with other, other typologies, including the pure round trip, which is where dollars come from the United States. They get lent outside the US and then they come back and get re-lent into the US. That's an actual round trip. There are also two types of international flows where the U.S. borrows funds in U.S. dollar terms from outside the U.S., from the euro dollar market, as well as where the U.S. Uh, lends into the foreign market or the out lends into the euro dollar market. But really, we shouldn't distinguish between the U.S. and the offshore market. It's really just one big system that encompassed the entire world because it allowed money to flow, as I said, from one place to another very freely through all of these interbank channels into the US, outside the US, never touching the US, doesn't matter. In fact, what they found in June 2012 was this. With this typology in hand, we consult BIS data 
on the euro dollar market covering 38 years by then, which, as they say, unfortunately, we missed the first 15, 20 years of the euro dollar market because nobody was really looking at it. We find that this market has played all of the roles just sketched, although the relative importance has shifted over time. Generally, the most common transaction involved a non-U.S. borrower sourcing funds from a non-U.S. lender as in the pure offshore type. And so what that means is, as a reserve currency system, you have foreigners transacting with other foreigners in that common medium, even though it's called U.S. dollar. It was so widely available and widely acceptable, the U.S. didn't even need to be involved at all. We have this global currency arrangement that benefited those in it, as long as it continued to function. That was the key there. And that was the problem that we keep running into in the post-2008 environment. It's not politics. It's not people hating America because people have always hated America. They've always hated the dollar. They've always hated what they consider economic supremacy. They voluntarily bit their tongue and just worked with the euro dollar system because it did work. It worked only too well. Here's what the BIS said. Consider an example from the 1970s. A Middle East central bank deposits $10 million in a bank in London, which in turn lends the funds to a Brazilian oil importer. The dollars might go through one or more offshore interbank transactions that could take place in London or another banking center, and the interbank counterparties could be arm's length or affiliated. It is important to recognize that ultimately pure offshore intermediating dollars does not require either sourcing funds or deploying funds in the United States. In the example of London's intermediation of dollars between the Middle East oil producer and Brazilian oil importer, the story can be told of the Brazilian firm borrowing dollars in London to buy oil and the Middle East central bank ending up holding the deposit created by the drawdown of the loan. Or the story can be told in the other direction as described above. While the funds may flow through the U.S. banking system, the residents of the placer of the funds, the residents of the borrower of the funds, the booking location of the deposit and the loan, and the jurisdic jurisdiction governing the transaction are all outside the United States. It was a true global currency. It was a global currency that performed very well the functions of an actual reserve currency. It had nothing to do with pricing funds in oil. Oil just happened to be in the 1970s one of the most internationally traded commodities. An international currency, as I said, needs to be widely available and widely acceptable. And this method of using banks spread all over the world, global banks spread all over the world, was the best means in order to create widely available and widely acceptable. But one of the unappreciated maybe really unappreciated aspects of the Eurodollar system was that because it was these various banks spread all over the world, that meant also respect, a common respect for contract law and contract provisions. Everybody needed to be on the same page about a whole lot of the, these, inter, these new networks of interbank relations that are no longer so new started from that basic premise. That was faith in contracts, faith in contract law, and faith in contract provisions. How to mediate disputes. And that brings us to what just happened with China. In the offshore credit markets, of course, the offshore U.S. dollar or eurobond credit markets, which is a part of the eurodollar system. And what the Chinese just did with Evergrande's bankruptcy being forced into liquidation simply reinforces the notion nobody's going to use a Chinese reserve currency. What Bloomberg reported a couple days ago was 
In the aftermath of the January 29th wind-up order, the biggest in China's history, key players on both sides of the negotiation paint a Kafka-esque picture of endless micromanaging by unidentified government handlers that was communicated to investors through a mind-numbing maze of channels, only to then be interrupted by months-long gaps and dialogue. The last of those gaps came to the shock of creditors after the court's December ruling giving the two sides one final chance to cut a deal. In other words, you can't do business in China's yuan terms because the government there operates arbitrarily, regardless of contract provisions and protections for creditor. Bankruptcy courts, forget about it. The government supersedes everything. So you can't have a global spanning currency in yuan terms because no one will be able to trust those yuan terms. If push comes to shove, we all know what's going to happen, as we're seeing play out in Evergrande. The Chinese government is going to assign arbitrarily losses based on its own political calculations rather than contract provisions that are predictable and agreed upon by all those in the system. That's never going to change. And that's one reason why I've said all along the Chinese really aren't interested in replacing the euro dollar to begin with, because they would have to give up that kind of control. And they were never really, never really willing to do so. But that doesn't mean the euro dollar doesn't need to be replaced. In fact, it should be replaced. It doesn't work. And it hasn't worked since August of 2007. But the fact that we're still dealing with the euro dollar all these years later just goes to show you how difficult a challenge it would be. As I often say, it would be like trying to replace the internet but having to start from scratch and build all of the infrastructure that, you ha that goes into an internet. You'd have to build the communications protocol. You'd have to find wiring. You'd have, to, you'd have to do all the hardware and the software and everything. It's an enormous, enormous challenge. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some who are actually up to the task, or at least trying to get up to the task. And I don't mean BRICS currency, because again, BRICS include the Chinese, and the Chinese don't work well with the Indians, and the Indians don't want to work with the Russians, and the Russians want their own thing. That's not going to work either. Instead, digital currencies. There are digital currency projects out there who are attempting to bridge these divides and to become a true intermediating medium of exchange. While Bitcoin is out there becoming a NASDAQ stock, thinking only about store value, other digital currencies are thinking, how do we make these things actually useful? Our problem is that though the euro dollar needs to be replaced 15 years ago, yesterday, they aren't anywhere close to being able to replace the current roles, the current functions of a reserve currency that the euro dollar still performs up to at least a minimum standard. To actually replace the euro dollar requires replacing and doing better the required roles of a reserve currency. China's yuan isn't going to do that. The BRICS currency, are, they're going to maybe try to on a very limited basis in maybe regional a regional sense. But digital currencies are indeed attempting to bridge these divides. They're just they're so far down the road before they can get to the point where it becomes a suitable, sizable, scalable challenge to the actual system. What that means is we're stuck with the euro dollar system for now, which means the dollar is not going to collapse. No matter how many times you hear, this is the year it's going to collapse. And it never does because... We need it. The world needs it. 
without a challenge to the euro dollar's capabilities as a reserve currency, we're stuck with this arrangement. Maybe the dollar should collapse, but it is not going to. I just talked about commercial real estate with Ken McElroy. Part of that discussion, you can see that here on YouTube. That's the one linked below. Make sure you sign up to Eurodollar University's webinar. That's next Monday. Link in the description. As always, a thank you for joining me. Until next time, take care.